And if you're watching live, we welcome you in. If you would stand and sing with us, we're excited to worship. fellowship i have some great news for you we are just about a year away from opening the new bentonville campus and we've just crossed the 15 million dollar mark toward reaching the goal of developing this new campus and paying for it by december of 2022 we're not paying any interest on this project because of your generosity at this point thank you and in this light thank you for faithfulness in giving each week during COVID and your extraordinary generosity to the gift. Through the gift, we were able to donate generously to ministries locally, regionally, and globally. Today, we have three new elder candidates to present to you. 
We are a church led by elders, and our current board has prayerfully sought the face of God as we considered all nominees presented. Please meet your new elder candidates. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Ed Parrish, and my wife is Guanaco Parrish. We've been married for 36 years, and we have three children and three grandchildren. We've lived in Northwest Arkansas now for 21 years, and I remember upon our arrival how Fellowship embraced us, and we made this our church home. I'm honored to be nominated as a candidate for elder, and it would be such a pleasure to uh, serve you here at Fellowship in that capacity. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Joe Ross. I've been married to my wonderful wife, uh, Catherine Ross, for 42 years. We have four children, uh, all grown now, and seven grandchildren. I grew up in Northeast Arkansas, but we've been in Fayetteville for the past 30 years. I worked as a radiation oncologist and took care of cancer patients at both Narti and the Highlands Oncology until I retired three years ago. I'm honored and humbled both uh, by this nomination uh, to become an elder, and I look forward to serving both you and Christ in this endeavor, if elected. Hello, my name is Jim Anse. I've been married to my wonderful wife, Margaret, for 36 years. We have two adult sons, Jimmy and John, and one beautiful nine-month-old granddaughter, Hannah Lee. We've lived in Springdale for the past 34 years, and for all of that time, I've worked at Harps Food Stores, first in IT, and then in finance. We've been attending fellowship for the past 27 years. I am deeply humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate for the Elton Board. With God's help, I will do my best to serve you in that capacity. Thank you for your consideration, and may God bless you. Thank you, gentlemen, for your willingness to be set forth as candidates for the Office of Elder. It is a tremendous responsibility to be an elder at Fellowship, and your willingness to be considered speaks highly of your character, integrity, and walk with Christ. And now we have one more thing to ask of you, Fellowship. If you are a member of our church, between now and February 22nd, please affirm these candidates by visiting the link below and follow the instructions found there. Thank you for your prayers and for participating in the elder nomination process. This is an important reoccurring event in the life of our church family. God bless you all. Well, good morning, fellowship. Whether you are here or online, we are so thankful you are here to worship with us this morning. And we wanna ask you to get your phones ready you know what to do with the QR code. This is your way into all things fellowship. We have a lot going on. And if by chance you are new, it's possible. Um, we are asking that you would send hashtag new to the phone number that we have up here. Matt, what you got for us this morning? Well, it's good to see you, Beth. Thank you. It's good to see all of you guys here today. Um, one of the things that we're doing today is we're going to be taking communion. And so if you did not get the elements on your way in, then the ushers will have some available in the back for you. And if you're watching online and you'd like to gather um, some elements, whatever you have, um, we would love to participate in that all together. Um, one of the other things we want to say is thank you so much for your generosity to the gift. Um, $565,000 was given this year, and that's huge, guys. The elders met last weekend to decide how to disperse those funds, and they're used here locally and abroad globally. And so we just want to thank you so much for your generosity in that. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, it's uh, cold everywhere except yeah, our hearts. That's, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and it's appropriate that we mention Merge. Merge is our eight-week opportunity for couples that are engaged or seriously dating to gain tools as they make that big step into marriage. So if you've not signed up, that starts next week, and now's the time to get that done. And also, we would like to highlight our Spectrum ministry. Um, that is uh, our ministry for 
painters and photographers that want to use their gifts um, for the Lord. And right now we have an online exhibit featuring our artist, Jeanette Hudgens. And she uh, shares visually through her artwork, her testimony through infertility and adoption. And it is a really sweet story. We want to invite you to view that. And coming March 7th, we have another exhibit uh, that will be in the foyer and online as well. So that's coming if you're an artist that would like to get plugged in, spectra at fellowshipnwa.org. And March 7th, there's something that's going to happen as well, Matt. So yes, share with the people. Huge. This is an announcement. I've been, waiting. I've been waiting 51 weeks to give this announcement. But on March 7th, we are starting up our children's services again. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Parents are like, okay. Woo. All right. <laughs> um, we are so excited about this. We are working hard with our team to provide as much space and social distancing as possible to fit as many kids as possible. Along with that, we do have some leaders that are still not able to return. If you are interested in serving, then, then there's some information, there's some more information on that QR code for how you can plug in and serve. But guys, mark your calendars. March 7th, we are opening birth through all the way up through elementary and then FSM is going to continue going and we are so excited about that. Hey guys, let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just thank him for all the things that he's blessed us with. Lord, it is amazing to, uh, to step back and just see your hand moving in our lives, Lord. Lord, we come before you with grateful hearts. Um, Lord, just to, uh, just to see that you have sustained us through this time, that you would comfort us through this time, and Lord, you are going to continue to do that, Father. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you as one body, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us, church? We're heaven's bond creations, his pride and
lift our voices and we sing. And I've seen all you've done. And I'll remember how far you carried me from beginning to the end. You are faithful. Hither by thy help I've come. Have you ever thought about those words and what they actually mean? If you're like me, I sung this song for most of my life and had no idea what I was saying when I sang those words. So I'd love to give you a little insight into the song, Come Thou Fount, and what, the, what it means when we're singing this. Come Thou Fount was written by a 22-year-old pastor from the early 1700s. It's about reflecting on the covenant faithfulness of God with his people. It's a song that asks God to tune our hearts in accordance with his. And when we sing about Nebuchadnezzar, we're not singing about Scrooge from Christmas times. We're singing about an ancient Near Eastern practice that we're actually gonna be looking at today in the book of Joshua. Pretty cool. The word Ebenezer is an ancient Hebrew word that literally translates to a stone of help. And Yahweh asks his people to set up these stones to serve as reminders to the Israelites that God is faithful to his people. They would see these stones and they would remember, God, you are faithful. And as I look back on my life, I've learned that I've had all kinds of Ebenezers through my whole journey as a spiritual believer in Jesus. And I wanna introduce you to my most recent Ebenezer. And this is my son, Graham. He's six weeks old. And he has been the most precious thing to happen to me. And when I see Graham, I see God's faithfulness. I see God sustaining him. I see God giving him what he needs, the food he needs, the nutrients he needs. And he just is a reminder to me that God is so faithful. So this morning, I wanna ask you, what are those places that you go to just remind you of God's faithfulness? Who are those people that you can't help but think, God, you are so good when you talk to them? As you reflect, I want Emily to lead us in this song, Come Thou Fount, as we sing this ancient song.
Father, we are so thankful that you make promises to us. Lord, that you make these covenants as promises to be faithful. So Lord, as we look back on the past, Lord, will we just be grateful? Lord, as we see your faithfulness to your people, Lord, and as we look in the moment and in the future, Father, would you just give us a great hope that you are who you say you are? We love you so much, Father. We pray these things in your name. Now, it might come as a shock to you, considering how obviously cool a person I am now, but I was a real dork as a kid. And uh, I had a tendency to get really interested in things that well-adjusted normal children wouldn't be really interested in. And uh, I remember one of the things I would quiz my dad about was the stock market and how investing worked. I really wanted to understand this. And so I'd ask him about it. And I remember in one of our conversations, him telling me about this little disclaimer. Have you seen this one before? It says, please remember that past performance does not guarantee future results. Now, why do they put that on there? Because crazy stuff happens right? It doesn't matter how well something's performed. It doesn't matter how long of a history it has of doing well. It doesn't matter how good a business plan happens. Things go nuts, and you can't guarantee that things are going to continue the way they've been. And so that's why they say you got to diversify, right? You don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Now, what are we supposed to do with that principle when we follow a God who commands that we don't diversify with our lives. Who demands that when things go crazy, when things get hard, we put all of our bets on him. That he's the only one we're to look to. Don't have a plan B for your life. Put all of your trust in him. Does his past performance guarantee a future result? To boil it down, the big question of faith is this. How can I know that God can be counted on? How can I really know 
that when things go crazy, when the next big obstacle comes, that God can be counted on. That's the question uh, that we're gonna be diving into this morning as we continue in our study of Joshua in Joshua chapter four. Now, just to remind you of where we are in the story, um, this people Israel has been brought out of Egypt. One generation has died. The second generation has now arrived at the land of promise that was promised to them hundreds of years earlier to their ancestors. They've come up to the Jordan River, the border of that land, and God miraculously parted, stopped up the Jordan River for them to cross over on dry land in a scene that is supposed to remind us of the Red Sea, of what God did for their parents' generation leaving Egypt. So they work as bookends. We left Egypt miraculously parting the Red Sea. Now we enter the Promised Land miraculously parting, walking through the Jordan and parting the Jordan. And so as we come to Joshua 4, there's this great anticipation. The soldiers are ready to go. The the river has been parted, and they're ready to go in and take the land. And then God gives them a rather surprising command. Let's take a look in Joshua chapter 4. We're going to read a good chunk of scripture here. So join us in in Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. We read, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you will stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now, the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle, in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. And 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho, for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground Then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. Now, as we read this story, one of the things that the Hebrew narrative loves to do is alter the pace of the story to draw attention to something. Sometimes the action happens really rapidly and really quickly. And other times it crawls to a very slow speed to draw attention. Did you feel how slow the description of that action was? I mean, it's like the Lord commanded Joshua to tell them, and then Joshua told them, and then they did it, and then the people watched, and then the Lord told and it just it's just a slow-moving thing, but throughout it, you get the sense that the people are in a hurry. The people hurry to cross. The soldiers are ready for battle. Now... I want you to take rocks out of the river and make a pile. 
Do you feel the conflict and pace here between how quickly the people are ready to move and yet God is giving them the slow actions? It reminds me of when I was a kid and, and I would wake up in the morning and I would see a fantastic snow on the ground and me and my sisters would get all bundled up, ready to go and we'd be ready to run out the door and mom would say, wait, stop, come stand in front of the fireplace. I wanna take a picture. And we're going, mom, what are you kidding? Everybody else is already out there. No, hey, did you eat your breakfast? Do you have your gloves on? And I'm going, mom, it's time to go, right? They're just eager to go. And yet the parent is like taking care of all these responsible things. Is, is that what's going on here? Like, why is God slowing them down when they are so clearly ready to go? Well, he tells us his purpose in the next verse, and he's already said it once. The text has already given us the purpose for this moment, and then it gives it again. It repeats it in verse 19. Principle for Bible study. If something gets repeated in the same chapter, it's probably important. So read again why they're supposed to do this. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. Now, they literally just saw the Jordan dried up. Do they need Joshua to tell them the Lord God dried the river up for you? Like they're literally, they just walked across. And Joshua says, the Lord dried the river for you. He's, he's like, he's telling them what they literally just witnessed. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Okay, I want to point out just a few things about what's going on in this command, this odd command to take a pile of rocks out of the river and make a pile of rocks in the camp. The first thing he says is you are setting it up so that later generations will ask you, hey, what's up with the pile of rocks? And then notice who's going to answer. He said their parents will answer them. When children ask, the parents are going to say, oh, let me tell you the story of when we entered the land and God parted the Jordan for us. Now, one of the things I love about this is it is setting up a picture for how faith gets passed from one generation to the next. And I love this because Fellowship's family mission statement aligns perfectly with this. Fellowship's family mission statement says this, that they are helping families own the spiritual development of the next generation. I love those two words in there, helping own. That avoids two ditches. Think about it. One ditch would be, families, it's on you. Go raise great kids. Don't mess them up. You're all on your own. The other extreme would be, hey, hand us your kids and we will hand them back to you, mature people who love the Lord. It's neither families are on their own to develop the next generation, nor is it the church replaces families in raising the next generation. Rather, the community of faith is here to help families as they do this hard work. Look at what's happening here in Joshua. The community is creating an opportunity for parents. The community is creating this memorial and giving parents the story. Hey, parents, here's what you're going to need to be able to tell your kids. Here's a memorial we're setting up for you so that when your kids ask, you can tell them. The community of Israel is helping parents to own this task of raising the next generation, of telling the next generation what God has done. And then there's a purpose. There's a purpose that we are given here for why God did this miracle. He said two things. The first, he said, is so that the nations, everyone outside of Israel, will know that the Lord is powerful. The second one is so that Israel would always fear the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that word, fear the Lord, I feel some discomfort. What, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Uh, 
I don't like the idea. In fact, I've had the experience of walking in fear of God where I have felt afraid that I would mess up, afraid that I would let him down, afraid that I have let him down, that I failed, that maybe because of my failure, he might not love me anymore. That's a horrible place to be. And in fact, John in the New Testament says, there is no fear of punishment. Perfect love drives out fear. So what's going on here? Do we have an Old Testament God who's mean and scary that we're supposed to be afraid of and a New Testament God who's loving and safe? No, because the New Testament repeats the command to fear the Lord. I think what's happening is we have a different kind of fear being described here than fear of punishment. Notice, what is it that God did that's supposed to make them fear him? It's not his punishment of them, it's his rescue of them. His powerful rescue of them is supposed to lead them to fear him. What kind of fear is this? Pastor Timothy Keller describes this in a way that was really helpful for me. He said, imagine whoever your like, lifelong hero is, whether it's a leader or a great thinker or an athlete or whatever, someone that you have just, oh, there's someone you look up to, and imagine you got to spend an hour with them and you knew that was coming. I imagine you would feel kind of nervous, right? You would feel some, some, some nervousness about how you would act in this time. You would want to choose your words well. Now, is that because you're afraid they're going to take out a weapon and strike you? Probably not unless you have a very odd hero, okay? Chances are your nervousness is not because you're afraid they will hurt you. It's probably actually because you're afraid of offending them. You have so much respect for them, so much awe of them, that you really want the time together to go well. And you're afraid of doing something silly, something embarrassing. Not for fear of punishment, but because your respect for them is so great. And the point here is that even though we can have incredible intimacy with the Lord because of what Jesus has done, even though we can draw very close to the Lord, at the same time, we should never become casual with the Lord. We should always maintain a level of reverence for who he is. We should hold both together that he is our savior and our father who we know and love, but he is also our Lord and our God. And so we can have an intimacy and a reverential fear for who he is. Both of those go together. And so we should, if we remember the mighty acts of God, we should maintain that kind of awe and wonder at who he is. And, and that's what Joshua is saying here. He's saying this has been done so that you will remember and fear the Lord all your life. And you will pass that on to the next generation. Now, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, we'll see that the crossing of the river had the desired effect on the nations. Chapter 5, verse 1, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Do you see what the second kind of fear does? You see, the kind of fear that Israel's supposed to have will give them courage. The kind of fear of someone who doesn't know the Lord drains their courage. They are terrified because they are not on the Lord's side. And what's happening here is they've heard what Yahweh did to Egypt. And they heard about Yahweh parting, the Lord parting the Red Sea. And now that God who wrecked Egypt has now entered Canaan. He parted the sea and he's coming for them. And they are terrified. Okay, so you can, you can imagine Israel's army. I mean, they're ready for battle. They, they patiently stopped, and they made their pile of stones. They did their memorial, and now they're ready to go, right? It's time. Well, look what happens in chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Ha'aralath. Now, one of the old Exodus movies had Pharaoh saying these words, God is not a very good general. I mean, think about, I'm not a military strategist, but think about the strategy of this plan. I'm going to bring my army 
into enemy territory, right on the doorstep of the enemy, and I'm going to perform elective surgery on all the men that incapacitates them from fighting and have them sit in the camp incapacitated for a few days. Does this sound like a good plan to you for winning a battle? What is going on? Can you imagine the nervousness this had to put in this army that's ready to fight? But look at the explanation for why it had to happen. In verse four, now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All, these, all the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, which sounds like the word to roll away to this day. You see, circumcision was an act given to Abraham, the ancestor, the father of the nation, to show that they were loyal only to the Lord. It was a mark for every male to say, I belong to the Lord. And the unfaithful generation before had not circumcised any of their children. They had not passed on loyalty to Yahweh to their kids. So now this generation that had not been raised to be loyal to Yahweh, they're going in on the behalf of Yahweh to go to war. And God says, wait, you can't go fight on my behalf until you've made yourself loyal to me. So stop. I know you're ready to go, but I want you to stop and consider your loyalty to me. Make your commitment to be faithful to me. Okay, so they, they stopped and they made the pile of rocks. They, they stopped and they did the circumcision. Now it's time, right? Now it's time to go invade the land. Verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Okay, so the Passover is their big holiday feast to celebrate coming out of Egypt. And right as they heal up from their circumcision, it's time for Passover. Now you would think, surely, if there's any time that it's okay to skip the holiday meal, it would be when you're on the enemy's doorstep ready for battle. But no. They pause. I think this is interesting. The first two memorials... God explicitly tells them, stop and make the pile of stones. Stop and be circumcised. This one, we don't have God explicitly saying, don't forget the Passover. This time, it looks like the people chose. Okay, we, we are going to do the Passover. And so they stop, and they have a meal together as a family, a, a week-long festival, where they stop to remember God rescuing them out of Egypt in a celebratory meal. And then this is what we read. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna, the bread that had fallen from heaven, stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. The transition has, is complete. They are now eating fruit, food from the land God promised. What's going on in this this? Almost two chapters here where the army is ready to take the land and God stops them, makes them slow down, and practice three memorials. The three memorials they had to practice were the circumcision, which reminded them of the promise to Abraham. And then they, promised, they practiced the Passover, which reminded them of their freedom from Egypt, how God had rescued them from Egypt. And then they, had, they also had the 12 Stones Memorial, which reminded them of God helping them to cross the river by parting the Jordan River. Why all of these memorials 
immediately after, why would God, after they have this miraculous crossing, make them pause before they take on the next thing? I think God is correcting a problem that has been persistent in Israel, and it's the tendency to forget. Take a look at Israel's pattern of behavior up to this point. Every time we're gonna see a pattern of they face an obstacle, then they panic, and then God delivers them. First obstacle, they're slaves in Egypt. Moses comes to deliver them. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh makes it harder on them by making them make bricks without straw. And what is the people's response? They point to Moses and they say, you put a sword in their hand to kill us. We're gonna die because, of the, because you made Pharaoh mad at us. God's deliverance, 10 plagues that crushes Pharaoh and he takes them out of the land. Next obstacle, they leave Egypt. They've just seen God's work and they come to the Red Sea and they can't cross and Pharaoh's army's behind them. So what's their response? These faithful people that just saw God's miracles? You brought us into the desert to die? Okay, God's gonna deliver. He parts the sea. They walk through, he crushes the army. As soon as they're on the other side of the sea, what happens? They can't find food. So what is their response? You brought us out here into the desert to starve to death? So what does God do? He literally drops bread out of heaven for them. So what happens? They eat up their bread and they turn around and what do they see? We can't find water. And how do they respond? Are you getting the redundancy yet? Did you bring us out of Egypt so we would thirst to death? So God has them strike the rock and get water out of the rock. He provides for them again. Then they come to Mount Sinai. And they see the glory of God on the mountain and his voice thundering down to them the Ten Commandments. And this time, the terrifying obstacle is the glory of God himself. Now this quote will give you insight into what they thought of their God. They said to Moses, do not have God speak to us or what? We will die. At every turn, they are convinced that ultimately God is out to get them. So God goes, okay, I'll give you a prophet to speak and I'll give you a tent where my glory will be concealed away in the Holy of Holies and you won't have to come into contact with my glory that way again. Then he's still being faithful to them. They're going toward the promised land. They send in spies. The spies come back and say, some of those Canaanites are kind of tall. And what is Israel's response? Did you bring us into this land so we'll die at the sword? And at that point, God said, enough. This generation isn't going in. I'll start again with your children. What's the problem here? Every single time they face an obstacle, they panic, God delivers them, and they run full speed to the next obstacle, and they panic again. They never learn the lesson. They never learn that God has a way of dealing with his people, and it's good, and it's loving. It's for their good. So this time, with this new generation, when he parts the, red, the, the, the Jordan River for them, he says, stop, don't go on to Jericho yet. Don't run to the next obstacle yet. Stop and take in this moment. Recognize what's happening. Stop and remember what I've done. He doesn't just have them make the memorial stones. He has them also remember the promise to Abraham. Remember the Passover. Connect the dots. Look at my pattern. One of my favorite professors, he used to say this. He'd say it almost every class until it was drilled in our head. What God has done in the past is both a pattern and a promise for what he will do in the future. But he's far too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. We'd be reading through the Old Testament. He'd say, now students, remember, what God has done in the past is both a pattern and a promise what he's going to do in the future, but he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. That's why we need to stop and remember. Because the faith that we need for our present challenge comes from remembering God's past faithfulness. Faith for our present challenge comes from remembering God's past faithfulness. So we need to stop. 
take stock and remember. We have to create regular rhythms in our life to remember what God has done and remember what he is like. We need memorials. So what are our memorial stones? How do we practice this as a a people of faith, as a church today? Well, the first and the most obvious and the most central one has to be the scriptures. Like this book, this record of God's past faithfulness is given to teach us what he does and what he's like. Now, I think we gotta be aware of a tendency right now in the church. There is a strong emphasis on the idea of identity, of knowing who you are. And I think that's good. I think that's a very good secondary purpose of the Bible. But get ready for a shock. The Bible was not written to tell you who you are. The Bible was written to tell us who God is and what he's done. Our primary need is not to know who we are, it's to know who he is. When Joshua had a huge challenge, God did not look at Joshua and say, be very strong and courageous because Joshua, you have what it takes. He did not remind Joshua who Joshua was so he could face a challenge. What did he say? Joshua, be very strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you. The source of our courage doesn't come from us. And yet it's my temptation every time I face a challenge to try to measure, do I have what it takes? That's always where I want to go. So our first memorial stone is to make time to remember, to get our eyes off of us and on him. Say, Lord, remind me who you are and that you are with me. Now, there are also practices that we need not only to remember God's work in other people's lives in the past of Scripture, but to remember his work in our own lives so that we don't experience God's faithfulness and then rush past it to the next event. So how do we do that? One really helpful practice is the practice of journaling, of taking the time to to write out our prayers, to write out our experiences, to make a record of what God has done so we can return to it. It's a really, really great discipline to start doing. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm a terrible journaler, okay? When I try to journal, I like suddenly turn into a caveman. And my, my journal entries look like Nick friends mean. Nick feels sad. God, please hurt mean friends. Okay, that's not how I pray often. So journaling is a really tough discipline for me. Um, And so it's usually like my journal entries are very bullet point. That's about all I have in me, okay? It's really, really hard. But I think it's a really good discipline to make a record, to get your thoughts and your experience on paper. It helps you to pause, to slow down, and to take stock of what the Lord's doing in your life. Now, my wife has a practice. Uh, She leads worship up here. She's very artistic, very creative. And so she creates artwork out of her experiences with the Lord. When she's meditating on a scripture, she makes it beautiful. And she puts it up. This is a picture of her closet. And this is where my wife goes to pray. And so she puts these images of things she's made, things our daughter has made, of different things that have been important to her life on her closet wall. And she goes and sits under these as she prays. And this is her way of remembering Whenever she's facing something new and challenging, she sits under these things that she has reflected on in past experiences and she prays. Now, for me, I'm, I'm highly visual, and so I really like visual reminders. This is what my desk at my office looks like, besides being really cluttered. Uh, let me just point out a few things that I've cut. This is, this is my memorial stone right here. One is I've got the wall filled with pictures from significant places and moments where I've just been really thankful for what the Lord's been doing. Pictures of time with my family that have been really meaningful to me. Um, that I can just see reminders of God's faithfulness in my life. Now, around the monitor, the computer, you'll see post-it notes. Many of those post-it notes are notes from friends and family of encouragement. Things people, I'll leave the post-it notes out on my desk, and sometimes people just write a note and stick it on my desk, and I'll just, I'll put it on the computer monitor. There's also some scriptures that I've found meaningful that I've been like, oh, this is something I really want to mark my life. And I post it up there. Um, In the bottom right, you'll see a little framed stamp It's from the Apollo 8 mission, and it says, In the beginning, God. A member of this congregation gave it to me after a Genesis 1 sermon as a gift. And I keep it right there on my desk um, to remind me of the bigness of God and the smallness of me and the really important responsibility of getting to teach the word. I also have a Where's Waldo toy um, that was pointed to me by a friend of mine, Dr. Gary Oliver. 
And it's an exercise he had me do to put there to remember in every circumstance to always be on the lookout for how does God want me to grow. Remember how difficult the circumstance, God is always growing me, so always be watching for it. And so I will come in and start my day and I'll sit down at my desk and oftentimes I'll just stop and breathe. I'll look at the pictures. I'll look at the notes of encouragement. I'll look at the verses that are important to me. I'll I'll look down at Waldo and think about growth opportunities. This is my ability to pause and remember, to take stock. I know of a family that they take this literally and they have a jar of rocks on their mantle. And every rock, they've taken a Sharpie and written a date and a word to memorialize a moment where where God is faithful to them. And if anyone comes over to their house and asks about the jar of rocks, they'll call their kids into the living room and the kids will start taking out rocks. And they'll say, oh, this is from the time when such and such family member died and we were really, really sad. And God comforted us in our grief and we got through it. And this is from a time when we really didn't have enough money to do what we needed to do. And so we prayed that God would give us what we need. And he did. He got us through that. And so their family can tell the story of God's faithfulness. So what's your memorial stones going to look like? What practice can you set up in your life? It's going to look different. Those examples are all given to show you that it can look very different for different people. But we all need a practice of regularly stopping and reflecting on what God has done and creating a way to return to it again, to remind ourselves. Because guess what? When the panic obstacle comes, our default reaction is not going to be faith. That has to be trained into us by regularly remembering who God is and what he's done. Because faith for our present challenge comes from remembering God's past faithfulness. And we have to be people who learn how to remember. Because we have such a strong tendency to forget. Now, one more memorial. Perhaps the most important one the Lord gave us on the night before he died. He paused. After a crazy week, he slowed everything down and he looked at his followers and he said, hey, I want you to remember what I'm about to do for you. And here's how I want you to do it. Whenever you gather, we get this instruction from Paul, whenever we gather, I want you to take the bread. I want you to take the cup. and Let this remind you of what I did. That I died for you. That I've forgiven you and that I've made a covenant with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm coming back. So this morning, as we sing, we're going to practice here in a few minutes remembering together. Lord, we love you. Would you make us faithful? Lord, would you help us to remember so that when we face a new challenge, a new moment, that we don't panic, that we don't believe that ultimately God is out to get us, that you're, that you're gonna leave us behind, but what you've done in the past is a pattern and you're gonna keep doing it, even if we don't know exactly how you're, do it, you're gonna do it because you're too creative. You're gonna stay faithful. So Lord, help us pause and remember so that we can remain faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
chapter 26 as he's with his disciples at his last supper. He's sharing with him and this is what he says. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat for this is my body. After that, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes this covenant, and shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. She take and drink. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, may that be the song that is on our lips as we leave this place. Lord, that we can't help but proclaim it. 
Father, would you continue to help us look back so that we can look forward with the future hope? So we can trust you and know that you're good because you are exactly who you say that you are. And that is good and faithful. Father, would you protect us as we travel home, Lord? Would you keep us safe? We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, church, I want to remind you that our prayer room is open. We have the parishes here to pray for you over here to, to my left and your right. And also, we would love to ask that you would exit out of our back doors on these exits just for safety. We've got some sidewalks that are helpful for you guys to walk.